Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm number 33. Psalm number 33. We come to psalm after psalm, and with a lot of them, we come away with the same idea. We as believers ought to praise God. We ought to praise God because of His character. We ought to praise God because of His works. We ought to praise God because of His faithfulness and so on. And this is an important truth that we must learn and be reminded of. So it's not something that we just hear one time and say, okay, we're all set, we've got that for the rest of our lives. No matter what kind of situation in which we find ourselves as believers, we need to learn to praise God. And we need to be reminded to praise God so that in times of prosperity, we don't take the glory to ourselves, the credit to ourselves, we deflect it to God so that He is praised in our prosperity. And in times of trouble, in times of difficulty, we give praise to God, even though that's probably the hardest time to do it. When it's, we could say, unnatural for us to praise God. Why would we ever praise God when we're going through this kind of a trouble? And yet, the Psalms call us to do that over and over again. In times of joy, in times of sorrow, praise God. And the reason that we would praise God is because we know God. The more that we know Him, the more that we see that He's a very real part of our prosperity and that He is near us in times of difficulty, we praise Him. We can't help but praise Him. The more that we get our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances, the more we praise God. We live to make much of God, as Pastor Tim Ains said a few weeks ago, and God compels us to do that through His works and through His teaching us about His greatness. So we need to be reminded often about His greatness, and that's why we come to psalm after psalm that just keeps reminding us of what a great God we serve, and that he, he deserves, He ought to be praised by us. So let's read this psalm together. I'll read out loud. You follow in your Bibles. Psalm number 33. This is the Word of God. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is upright and all His work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out 
on all the inhabitants of the earth, He who fashions the hearts of them all, He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. The warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. God is great and greatly to be, cra- to be praised. Because God is great, believers ought to praise Him and remain faithful to Him. That's the basic summary of this psalm for us this evening. God is great, and so we must praise Him and remain faithful to Him. Let me show you the first part of that statement. God is great, verses 1-3. through Very simply, God is great and deserves our praise. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous one. Praise is becoming to the upright. It is fitting, as another translation says. The most appropriate thing that we can do as believers the most fitting thing for us to do as believers, the most becoming thing is to praise God. Last Friday, we attended the funeral of Jennifer's grandmother. And if I short, showed up in shorts and a tank top, people would give me you know, dirty looks and think, those clothes are not fitting for a funeral, right? There are certain clothes that are expected of us when we go to a funeral. And in a, in a different way, believers or I should say in the same way, believers whose, mouth fail to, whose mouths fail to give God praise is unfitting. doesn't fit the, that, the circumstances in which we are. And remember, it doesn't matter what circumstances we are in, whether in times of prosperity or times of difficulty, tragedy, it is fitting for believers to praise God. In fact, it is, it is unusual and abnormal for believers not to praise God. And so we see the end of verse 1 that praise is becoming. It is fitting for the upright. Verse 3, sing to Him uh, a new song. Okay, So we have this command here in verse 2 that goes on, give thanks to the Lord, give praise to Him with these instruments. And then verse 3, sing to Him a new song. Not talking about us writing a song to God necessarily, that probably wouldn't be a bad thing if you have that ability. But, but it's a call for, for praising God because of the fresh experiences that you have in life. What, what is it that you can praise God about now? What is the, the new song that you have in your heart because of the circumstances that you're in? A fresh praise to God for what He has done. So, believers ought to praise God, verses 1-3. through And we could ask, why? Why is it fitting for us to praise God? Why ought we to sing a new song? Why ought we to give thanks to God? And verses 4-19 through give us the answer. And that is because, very simply, God is great. God is great. Now, the way the psalmist 
uh, lays this out, I believe, and we don't know who the psalmist is. If you notice underneath the psalm number, there's no, there's no author given. And so, we can guess that it could be uh, David, but it could be any number of men who, who wrote these psalms as well. But the point that he's making is we ought to praise God because God is great. And he's going to show us in verses 4 through 19 why he is great. In fact, in verses 4 and 5, there is a summary of God's greatness. And then verses 6 through 19 actually demonstrate that greatness in those four various ways. So there are four ways that we see in this passage that God is great. Number one, God's word is powerful. Look at the first line of verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright. Okay, so there's the first way God's great. The second way is at the end of verse 4. The third way is at the beginning of verse 5. And the fourth way is at the end of verse 5. So that's why I say this is a summary of the rest of the passage. And now, what we're going to see is an expression of that spelled out in, the, in a larger section. So, the word of the Lord is upright, verse 4, first part of verse 4. And now we can see that demonstrated in verses 6 through 9. We could say, what is the clearest way that we see that God's Word is powerful? And the answer would be, verses 6 through 9, in what? In God's creation. Is there any clearer way that we see that God's Word is powerful than in His creation? So you see how that works? I just want to show you that structure because that's where we're going to be going back to verses 4 and 5. And I think the psalmist did that on purpose, that he, he gave a little summary of how God is great, verses 4 and 5, and then gives an expression of it, what it looks like, an illustration of it in verses 6 through 9. God's Word accomplishes its intended effect. What does God want His Word to do in creation? He wanted creation to come into being, and it did. And so we know that God's Word is powerful. And I hope you understand that, that if we see that God is that powerful, if He can cause creation to come into being through His very Word, then can He not, through His Word, accomplish what He wants to happen? Remember Isaiah 55.10? His Word never returns without accomplishing what He has set out for it to do. It always goes out and accomplishes what God wants. In some cases, it's the hardening of someone's heart. It is bringing them into further condemnation. In other cases, it is bringing them into the light, helping them to see the glory of the Gospel, the glory of the truth of the Word of God. So, God is great because His Word is powerful. And the, the clearest way, as I said, that we see that is in creation. Notice verse 6, "...by the Word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, and He lays up the deeps in the storehouses." The, the, whole, the whole earth, the whole world, the whole creation was brought together by, the end of verse 6 says, by the breath of His mouth. Something that we think that, that requires very little energy on our part to actually breathe. 
And yet this is what God uses to bring creation into being. I especially like verse 7 because it shows the power of God's creation, the power of God's Word. That He gathers up the waters of the sea together as a heap. Think of a tsunami or a hurricane or a raging flood and the power that, that those forces have in them. That that water can just destroy and level buildings and kill people and animals and all sorts of... and just bring devastation on large areas of land. Or even some of these great storms that happen out in sea and just take ships and rip them apart into shreds. And so the water of the world is very powerful. They are terrifying forces when we come into the face of their rage. And yet, notice how they're described here in verse 7. He gathers the waters of the sea together in a heap. It's as if You know, as a little kid, we take a little pile of dirt and we pile it all up into a heap and we have it all where we want it. This is God with the waters, these raging, powerful forces of the world. He just gathers them all up into a heap and it's no big deal for God. And He lays up, the second part of the verse, verse 7, He lays up the deeps in the storehouses. Like we would store up food in our pantry or, or a farmer would put grain in his silo God takes the deeps, the depths of the oceans, and He just puts them into a, a, into the storehouses. And notice how powerful His Word is in verse 9, that He makes creation stand at attention. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Creation responds to God. As soon as He speaks, creation responds. It comes into being. And I like how one uh, pastor explained this. He, he said, from the time of creation, everything on in the planet, everything in the universe obeyed God. Everything in existence obeyed God. The Son obeyed God. The Spirit obeyed God. And each part of creation that came into being obeyed God. But it wasn't until Genesis chapter 3. It was, it was very soon after that as all of these things are saying, yes, yes, yes. God says, let there be light. And it says, yes, I'm coming into being. And then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve say, no. It is shocking how defiant we can be as humans, that God's Word is so powerful that it commands all of creation to come into being and yet we can so quickly dismiss His Word as if it's nothing. Why would we defy God in such, in such obvious ways? And that's really, I think, the point of verse 8. Look at verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Here's the very natural implication of all this. If God's power is so clearly seen in creation and the fact that His Word accomplishes what He wants it to do in creation, then, verse 8, we ought to fear God. We ought to respond to God in right ways. We ought to, to, to stand fast when He commands. God is... 
deserving of our worship, our praise, our obedience. And just to give you an idea, one of the things that we come across in the Old Testament is this phrase, the fear of the Lord. And sometimes it's hard to describe what the fear of the Lord is. Sometimes we think of it as just utter terror and uh, just uh, just an, an awful um, fear of God and in perhaps a bad way. But I think if you look at verse 8, it actually helps us to see the parallelism. If you look in the two lines that are given there, and I think the second line actually describes what it means to fear the Lord. So look at the first line. Let all the earth fear the Lord. There's the first idea. And then I think he repeats it. He shows some parallelism in the second line. Let all the inhabitants of the world... That's in parallel with what in the first line? All the earth. Okay, so all the inhabitants of the world, all the earth. And so what would be parallel in the second line with fear of the Lord? To stand in awe of Him. So for us to fear God is to stand in awe of Him. To have a, as some theologians have put it, a reverent awe for Him. A reverent respect for who God is. For His position. For His greatness. So, the first way that we see that God is great is that God's Word is powerful. The second way is found at the end of verse 4. So look back to there. And all His work is done in faithfulness. I would say it this way, that God, God's rule is over all the nations. God's rule is over all the nations and He stands for His people. So, in verse 4, it says, all His work is done in faithfulness. There's the summary and now we want to see the expression of that summary, and that's found in verses 10 through 12. All his work is done in faithfulness. And here's how we can see it, verse 10. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. So the way that we see God's rule over the nations and His special love for His people is, is, in his, is here in verses 10-12 through 12 as He nullifies the counsel of the nations. All the nations could come together and try to rage against the God of the universe, but God's rule is over all the nations as we learned in Psalm number 2. God will have, God will have the last day. In fact, He frustrates the plans of the people. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. So we have a contrast here between the council of the nations. They come together and they talk about how we can get done what we want to accomplish. And yet, in the second part of verse 10, it says that God frustrates those plans. And this speaks again to the fact that we really need to trust God in our country. Sometimes we think that our country is kind of just spinning out of control and, and sometimes we look out around the world and we say even our world is spinning out of control. And, and yet, what we understand is from the Scripture is that it could be much worse if God is not frustrating their plans. The council of the nations, they're coming together and trying to establish their rule over this world in such a way that would be effective for them. But what we learn from Scripture is that God is actually frustrating their plans. 
And he's accomplishing exactly what he wants to accomplish in our world and in our nation. We, as humans, have limited power, but our power is under the rule of God. God rules over all the nations. And He has a special rule over His people. That's what verses 11 and 12 are about. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Remember in verse 9, when He commanded, they stood firm. Well, just as creation stood firm, so does the counsel of the Lord. Nothing catches God by surprise. He is unchangeable. He's not up there wringing His hand wondering what the next move He ought to make. Because He knows what He's going to do. He knows how it's all going to turn out because He's planned it. He's planned it all. The end of verse 11, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. In other words, they stand. God's righteous will demands the praise of His people. So here's how we connect it back to the main point. God is great because His Word is faithful. It is powerful. We see that in creation and we see it in the way that He rules. God is great because He rules over all the nations. So we ought to praise God because His rule is what ultimately stands. All these nations are building up what they want to be as their kingdom's And ultimately, it is God's kingdom that will stand. It's God's rule. And then we come to verse 12. And this is a verse that I think has been used very much for our nation, I think out of context. And I I want to show you why I say that. Look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. Now, In order for us to understand this verse, we need to understand who the verse is talking about. Now, we could say, well, it is any nation where God is the God of that nation. And so that would include America. So if God is the God of America, then then that nation is going to be blessed. Or we could listen to the other nation who, who allows God to be their Lord. But notice the text again. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Notice who these people are. The people whom He has chosen for His inheritance. Who are the people whom God has chosen for His inheritance? Is it the United States from the 21st century? Is it the United States from the 18th century when the country was first established? Is it any other country in the world other than one? What what nation is it? It's Israel. It's God's chosen people. They are His inheritance. And what we, we do when we look at this verse and try to apply it to our country is we take this verse in such a way and, and use it in such a way in which it's not designed to be used. It's not designed to be a promise for the United States of America that that God will bless our nation. We have no promise of blessing from the Scriptures. The only promise of blessing that we have is connected to the establishment of churches just like in any other nation of the world. And so there's no special nation that God has other than the nation of Israel. 
The nation whose God is the Lord is the nation whom God has chosen. So, so Israel was that nation. And remember how Israel became that nation. Was it because of their, their just love for God and what a special people they were, how they just sought after God? Was that how they became the chosen nation of God? In the very words that I just said, it reveals how they became the nation. I said, it, how did they become the chosen nation of God? And the answer is they were chosen. They didn't do anything to, in, to, to receive God's inheritance. They were chosen by God. God chose them. And Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 spell this out very clearly for the, us. It's not because you were larger than anybody or better than anybody. In fact, you were the smallest, one of the smallest nations around, and yet I chose you because I wanted to cho- choose you. That was God's view. So, so in the same way, I would say that we can't force this blessing upon our nation because this blessing that's promised in verse 12 is promised to a nation that God has already chosen. So we can't say, God, we want to be this nation, so we're going to make You our Lord, and now You have to bless us. And that simply is not the promise that's given here. Even if our nation does make God its sovereign ruler, that somehow God will bless us materially. See, what we've done is we've done a little bit of revisionistic history. We've gone back into our history and said, see all the material wealth and the prosperity that I that our country has had, and see how we've become a superpower or the superpower in the world. You know what that's from? Has become from our solid biblical foundation. We have we were the nation who saw God as the Lord, and now we basically put God into a place where He had to bless us, and so He blessed us materially. But do you remember what Dr. Doran said when he was here? Faith doesn't guarantee material blessings. We could be the most faithful nation in the entire world and yet still not have the status of being a superpower. See, God doesn't always connect the dots between faith and material things. And that's what we like to do as Americans. See, the reason that we've come into this good position that we're in, and we should be thankful for that and ultimately point it back to God's grace, but not necessarily because we sought God as the Lord. Sometimes there were, just frankly, some corrupt practices that were going on. Sometimes people were using God as a way to reach their constituency. And so we can't automatically try to try to take history and, and revise it. And I, I think this this verse has been misused for a long time and we need to understand this is not talking about the United States, it's talking about Israel. So God's rule is over his nations, over all nations, and he stands specifically for his people. Now the third way we see that God is great is found at the beginning of verse five. So here's the summary and then we'll see the illustration of it in verses 13 to 15. So the summary, verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice. God's righteousness and justice. So then the psalmist goes down verse 13, verses 13 to 15 to illustrate 
this aspect of God's character. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Here we see a bit of God's transcendence here. That God is far above us. We are so small and He is so great that He kind of looks down on us and sees what's going on in our lives. and He looks at all the inhabitants of the earth. God is transcendent. But, but particularly what, this, what these verses are drawing out is that God loves righteousness and justice. That He is looking down on the earth for something. He's looking down for righteousness and justice. Notice verse 15. He who fashions the hearts of them all, who understands all their works. God directs the hearts of men. He fashions their hearts as He wants them to be. We can think of the story of Israel leaving Egypt and God making the Egyptians favorably disposed towards them right before they leave. And so when Israel asked for some possessions, Egyptians at that point were fashioned, their hearts were fashioned by God in such a way that they said, take whatever you want. And Israel ended up becoming a rich nation because of their plundering of the Egyptians. God fashions their hearts. We also know that, we also see an example of this with Saul when he went into the cave, remember, and, and, and David was told that the Lord delivered Saul into his hands. It was God who, who fashioned the heart of Saul. It was most clearly seen, perhaps, or most shockingly seen in the Jews who killed our Lord. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, we find out that, that it was them whom God predetermined that they would do this, but He handed them over to angry men who wanted to kill Him. So God, in a sense, fashioned their hearts to do what He wanted, to accomplish what He wanted. Again, we go back to the idea that there are no surprises with God. And He's not reacting. God doesn't react. God is always proactive. He knows what's going to happen because He's planned it. And He understands, the last part of verse 15, He understands all their works. He's formed their hearts. And so why couldn't He form their every part of their being? So God's righteousness... And His justice. God loves righteousness and justice and He directs people to that place. So, God is great because His Word is powerful. God is great because He rules over the nations and stands for His people. God is great because of His righteousness and justice. And then fourthly, God is great because His loving kindness is vast. Because of His vast loving kindness. Verse 5 at the end, the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. God is one who loves faithfulness and justice, and He is committed to the proper exercise of His faithfulness. Wherever Israel is, God is there, and God is faithful to them. But, but God is faithful to more than just Israel. God is faithful to all of the people on the earth those who fear Him. The illustration of God's loving kindness, His vast loving kindness, is found in verses 16-19. to The king is not saved by a mighty army. 
God is watching over His people in verses 13 and 15. Remember, He sees all the inhabitants of the earth. And it's not to see, uh, not for the sake of, of their interest, but so that they can find rescue in Him. And the key is that rescue is not found like we saw this morning in physical strength and victory, is it? It's not in, in, in advanced weaponry. It's based our victory, our rescue is based on the level of God's commitment to us. Notice verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. So, you can build up your army to be strong and powerful, but that's not how a king is saved, ultimately. A warrior is not delivered by a great strength. You can become very powerful as an individual warrior, but that's not how... A warrior is delivered. Verse 17, a horse is a false hope for victory. In those days, horses were very uh, a sign of power for them. If you had a lot of horses, you could attack and overcome many armies. But it's a false hope for victory. Nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So what we learn is the key to our rescue is not our military prowess or our advanced weaponry. It is God's commitment to us. Is He committed to us or not? Sometimes God does provide victory and sometimes it may appear that God is giving us the victory through our ability. God may choose to allow that sometimes like He did with Joshua when they actually did overcome some of the, the, the larger armies there through their military ability, even through some ambush like at I. But, but really, what we need to understand is that victory ultimately comes from whom? Not from the army. Not from the ability. Not from the, the weapons. It's from the Lord. And then verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope for His loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. God fashions their hearts. He knows them all. And He most certainly knows those who fear Him. He especially has a relationship with those people who fear Him. And He delivers their soul from death. So, as opposed to the plans of the nations, they rise up, they build their kingdoms and think that they can overcome and they have this council together, and yet God overcomes it. God's Word is what stands forever. God's kingdom stands. God knows all people and all hearts and He can direct all hearts to where He wants them them to go and He especially knows those who fear Him. So, then the psalmist goes in the last four ver- excuse me, three verses, verses 20-22, to 22, and he shows us that first, we saw because God is great, we must praise Him. So, verses 1-3, through remember, praise God because God is great, verses 6-19. to And then, praise God, or I should say, be faithful to God because God is great, verses 20-22. to So, because God is great, we should praise God and we should be faithful to Him. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our hearts rejoice in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let Your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in You. Our response 
to God's greatness ought to be faithfulness to Him. And so the psalmist turns now and says, yes, we ought to praise God because He's great. But we also ought to, pr- we ought to be faithful to Him. If in creation He spoke and it was done, He commanded and everything stood fast, how much more ought we who have been bought by God through the blood of Jesus Christ be faithful to Him? How much more ought we to obey Him? I love how one commentator, Golden Gay, summarizes this passage. He says, All of God's words and deeds can be characterized by uprightness, truthfulness, faithfulness, decisiveness, and commitment. God's involvement in creation, His power over creation, illustrates His commitment and His faithfulness. God's involvement in international affairs in verses 9-12, through illustrate it. God's capacity to bring deliverance in verses 13-19, to illustrate God's faithfulness. And so our response ought to be one of praise and faithfulness back to God. And that's what worship is. It's getting our eyes off of ourselves and our own ability and on to God and what He's doing. We shift our focus onto eternal things, onto the eternal being, God. And we praise Him with a new song. Because over and over again, the idea, remember, of a new song is a fresh song in our hearts because of what God has done lately. We're reminded of His faithfulness to us again. Maybe it's through a story that we were reminded of in the Scriptures. Maybe it was through a specific act where God showed His grace to us in life today. So we are called to be like God in the sense that we reflect His character. And those who reflect the same character, however feebly, will most hungrily worship Him for His perfections. Those who reflect the same character as God will most hungrily worship for, uh, for His perfections. This is what Don Carson says. He says, the, the godly praise of us is tied to the moral transformation of us as worshipers. So as God is changing us, showing us God's greatness and reminding us over and over again about what a great God we serve, we're transformed And it causes us to shout out in praise to God, to sing praise to God. So we should be filled with praise because we've seen what God has done and because we are further awaiting greater works of God or or more works of God. We've seen what You've done before, God, and we've praised You because of that. And we continue to praise You. And we also praise You because we anticipate what You're going to do in us. You've demonstrated Your love and Your grace and Your faithfulness to us here. So now we expect You to do it again. So we praise You and we give ourselves in service to You. Those who are redeemed ought to say so. They ought to praise God with their lips because He is great. And they ought to praise God with their lives by being an alleluia, as the song goes. Make my life an alleluia. 
a song of praise to You each day. That is, that I would give my life in constant obedience and faithfulness to You, God, because of Your works and because of Your character. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would help us not to become tired of of being reminded about Your faithfulness to us and to Your people throughout the ages. We have seen Your great works on the people of Israel and how You have protected them, kept them from extinction through powerful acts of mercy and sometimes just through the ordinary means uh, that You accomplish Your work through them. And we see that same thing in your life, in our lives. We see you powerfully protect us and sometimes we see it just in the ordinary means of life. And yet we are we 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 miss the point sometimes of life because we have our eyes fixed on ourselves and on our circumstances and we fail to look up to the hills from where our help comes. Because our help comes from you, O Lord. So we pray that You would help us to have a proper focus. And I know that these people here want to honor You with their lives. And so I pray that You would just give them encouragement tonight to continue on in being faithful to You and praising You with their lives and with their lips. I pray the same for myself. In Jesus' name, Amen.